0: This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over the counter markets at RVLGF. This is not over, ladies and gentlemen. Bitcoin takes it on the chin and gold comes out swinging. Another dramatic week in the markets and what a 2021 it has been. What a 2021. And, you know, of course, everybody who's in crypto and like I was saying in a previous episode, I'm 98% in this stuff. And I don't want to dwell on it too much. This is a mining podcast, but we're also in the investment sphere here, as we're going to see later in our featured content with Tim Gitzel's conference call from Cameco. I want to check in with him. But I did want to touch on this because we have been talking about crypto, as we should be, and this disrupting gold narrative, and... It would be a little disingenuous for me to not discuss this crash after saying how great it was that it was going up and how this is a parallel financial system and this is all going to the moon. So what are my thoughts on this? Quickly, I have a lot, actually, but I'm going to be quick about it. First of all, this is not over. There is a generational component to this, and as someone who has been deeply engaged— in the crypto sphere, it's, it's like a video game. Okay. It's like a financial video game. And the analogy I, I sort of use when I think about this, it's like the kids are playing video games and the parent comes in and says, Hey, the video games are over. It's time here. Here's your punishment. You're minus 40%. You're minus 50% drop. And this is over. And my take on it is, it's just a little too much fun. Have I stopped playing my financial video game called Crypto? No, and I don't think it, I, there are those new people, those, you know, the people who were hoping to just double that knew nothing about it, and I know a few of these people. What they end up doing, I'm not sure, but to go back to my analogy of the kid playing video games, do you think in a week or two the kid's going to be playing video games again? I think so. So that is one component. Like, there is a whole generation, and I'm on the older side of that generation, but there is a whole generation that really is in that ecosystem and is not going back. So that's one component. Another component. Think of the narrative of Bitcoin and the implications of it are ginormous, we're talking about replacing currencies, world hyper-Bitcoinization. We all inevitably end up in a Bitcoin world where that is the standard of account, digital gold. That is the narrative. Believe it or not, that is the narrative. And Ethereum, which will be the home of the derivatives market and everything related to uh, of finance. So Think of how huge that narrative is. And so I think of the hero's journey. And in the hero's journey, there is a near-death experience. Do you really think, you crypto aficionados, including myself, do you really think you're going to replace the dollar, you're going to replace the banking system, and you're not going to have a near-death experience along the way? So... All to say, this is made to order. We should expect this. The only thing is, is you don't know when. But as Rao Powell says, he, he posted some tweet from last September saying, I fully expect a 50% drawdown along the way. And he just reposted that. And I think that's the right attitude. Now again, not financial advice. You have to make your own decisions and assess your own risk according to your own situation. But the financial video game You know, like, and this is another aspect of the financial, it's a little too much fun. It's a little too much fun. And there's no way in heck that you are going to find that generation of crypto kids going back to a 0.25% annual interest banking system. You have to understand some of these projects Some of these projects have merchandise and that people, I'm sometimes in these telegram groups, they all have telegram groups and some people are requesting merchandise of their like financial, you know, investment. Could you imagine the top five Canadian banks where people wanted to wear merchandise showing them on t-shirts? I mean, if you saw it, you'd automatically assume there was irony involved, right? So do you really think that they're just going to throw that away and go back to the 0.25% world that gets them nothing? So those are my thoughts. I have a lot more to say. and Actually, one final point, which is really interesting. I heard on a podcast maybe three months ago, but it stuck with me, uh, this idea of the crypto hippie. It's like these people who get into crypto, it does kind of change your your mind a little bit, okay? It does sort of change your worldview a little bit when you're really in it. it like I say, sometimes it feels like you're in 2030. So it's almost like these crypto hippies, I, I thought it was a great term, they're not going back, you know? So I may be wrong, but that is my take on this. So, you know, I just see this story just popped up on CNBC. Kramer sees, quote, one more cathartic decline in Bitcoin as a buy sign to those who missed crypto craze. I agree. I agree, but we shall see. Have I sold anything? No. And you know, final thing. Why haven't I sold anything? Well, first, I believe in it. But second, I have structured my portfolio for passive income. And this is why this digital asset area is not going away. As long as the yields destroy the yields in our current financial system, that system will continue to thrive. As long as those yields continue in one form, shape, or another, the digital asset space will thrive and will continue to attract money. So, For me, it's my passive income has gone down. Otherwise, it's just numbers on a screen. So I've gone long here. Now, we have an exciting show also for the speculators. I I want to check in with Tim Gitzel of Cameco. We checked about a year ago. We learned a lot about their strategy. And I just wanted to check in and... Not too much has changed, but it was interesting to just get the numbers and just to get an update and see where everything is in the uranium market. And ultimately, the long story short is Tim Gitzel does see uncertainty in the uranium supply coming and a bit of a supply crunch. He doesn't use that word. He says improving fundamentals, but but when you listen to what he says... It sounds like a supply crunch is coming in the 2030 area of pretty dramatic proportions. So there's uncertainty in supply while there is increasing certainty in demand. Larger nuclear fleets, when you hear the numbers on China, it's quite something. So again, this is not packaged like a, this is raw conference call, but Tim Gitzel is an excellent speaker, so it's easy to listen to and you're going to walk away with a pretty good understanding, at least from Tim Gitzel's point of view, of what's going on in the uranium market. So lots to look forward to. And finally, we had a great global mining symposium. We're going to start posting those in future episodes. Really interesting commentary. Uh, We're going to get uh, the McKinsey commentary in our first story here, a story by Carl A. Williams. So, Lots going on. And finally, you have only a few more days to nominate someone for the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. The deadline is June 1st, 2021. Just go to mininghalloffame.ca slash nominate. So only a few more days left on that. With that, if you want to find us online, you can find us on northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. You can find us on Instagram at the northernminer. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a report on the Global Mining Symposium by Carl A. Williams. Demand for nickel in EV batteries could lead to supply shortage in the next couple of years. And this is according to McKinsey's Ken Hoffman, who spoke at the Global Mining Symposium. And it looks like this is mostly attributed to electric vehicles. The growing market for electric vehicles is likely to see increased pressure for nickel, a critical component for nickel manganese cobalt batteries used in EVs, according to Ken Hoffman, senior expert at McKinsey's Basic Materials Institute. In an interview with Frick Ells, executive editor of Mining.com, Hoffman said that the sales of EVs reached over 3 million units last year, up from around 22,000 a decade ago. Quote, if it weren't for a shortage of microchips in 2021, you'd probably be looking at 6 to 7 million EVs sold by the end of this year. You know, the speed with which EVs are being adopted, it's something that Kathy Wood was saying from ARK Investments. If memory serves, this is something that she's been saying, that this is going to happen way faster, than has been projected. And this seems to bear that out a little bit. Let's continue. Last year, EV batteries consumed around 200,000 tons of nickel, with over 300,000 tons expected this year. Quote, currently about 20 to 25% of global nickel production is going into EVs as Class 1 products. Again, EVs are electric vehicles. With nickel content greater than 99.8%, Class 1 products provide the purity required for NMC batteries, Class two products, which contain less than 99.8% nickel, are used to make stainless steel and alloys. And if we scroll down a bit, Hoffman continues, quote, If prices increased by 10 dollars to $15,000 per ton, you're looking at about a 20 to 30% increase in the cost of a battery, end quote. Hoffman's single biggest fear for the EV battery market is that nickel prices will go so high that battery manufacturers will look for substitutes and move to other materials. Then the nickel market will, quote, do what it has always done, which is to go through a huge boom followed by a big bust, end quote. Now, this is also a theme we've been seeing, which is this idea that high commodity prices could slow down a transition to the electric grid away from fossil fuels. And if we scroll down a bit more, this is uh, another issue, which I was bringing up in my panel with Anthony Malowski of Nickel28. And so Hoffman noted that China and other countries like the United Arab Emirates are investing heavily in Indonesia to ensure reliable supplies of nickel. The problem for the West, however, is there is a lack of smelters outside Indonesia. Quote, finding mines is a lot easier than having to put the U.S. one to two billion dollars needed to build a smelter, end quote, Hoffman said. Now, I just endlessly don't understand why we can't put two billion dollars into a smelter. Like, I I see billions being thrown around here, there, and everywhere. In fact, trillions. And we can't put together two billion dollars between public and private Resources for a nickel smelter? I, I I keep asking these kind of questions, and I don't get an answer. I don't understand. Continuing on, Hoffman believes that the European Union and the U.S. should put the billions they've pledged for the EV industry into building smelters and refineries. Like, I mean, it seems glaringly obvious. He noted, for example, this is Hoffman, that Tesla and Volkswagen are looking to source nickel powder, but current world production is only 30 to 40,000 tons per year. Quote, if suddenly you need 500,000 tons of nickel powder, where's it going to come from? Who's going to make it, and where's it going to be refined? End quote. So, again, like, Canada is a leader in mining, supposedly. But now we have to rely on Indonesia? to to get a smelter to refine our nickel like I, so i'm just sort of speechless on this stuff anyways so you can read more in depth it's a really great article uh by Carl A Williams by what was a really great talk at the Global Mining Symposium last week so you don't want to miss these things we're going to have another one these are quarterly and you can see they just get awesome guests. so moving right along the pandemic has reduced mining capex expenditures by 8% in 2020, according to a report by S&P Global Market Intelligence. And this is by our new reporter, Henry Lazenby, who is writing great macro big picture articles that, you know, I love to read on this podcast. New research by S&P Global Market Intelligence has found that among more than 400 mining companies examined... Actual capital expenditures fell 8% in 2020 as regional lockdowns forced work stoppages and placed global supply chains under unprecedented stress. At the beginning of 2020, the miners group was forecasting CapEx of $162 million, a 9% year-on-year increase on 2019. But as the pandemic impacted the sector, miners revised their spending plans 4% lower to $156 billion. For the year, still well above 2019 levels. So, you know, $6 billion lower. And then, as the pandemic tightened its grip on miners, they struggled to hit the revised plans with actual spending in 2020 coming in at $149.5 billion. 8% and 4% lower than pre-COVID-19 and COVID-19 revised forecasts, respectively. And slightly lower than 2019 reported spend. You know, I say not bad. Let's not forget what happened to the markets a year ago, Uh, the stock market crash. I mean, that was a good two and a half weeks of panic, maybe two weeks of, you know, thousand point declines on the S&P 500 is what it felt like. I mean, it was pretty dramatic. Uh, Maybe it wasn't that bad, but it was pretty close. Maybe it was worse on some days. So if mining CapEx drops 8% from pre-COVID-19 projections, sounds like... If anything, they hit a little speed bump, which is pretty amazing. It just goes to show how resilient the mining sector was and how important it was during this pandemic. So, continuing, SP points out the global recovery is already underway, forecasting global gross domestic product growth of 5.5% in 2021, and capital spending is expected to increase significantly. 2021 is forecast at $176 billion, up 18% from 2020 and 2019 spends. This results from delayed programs resuming and general ramp-up in activity spurred by solid metal prices. So you can go in-depth on that on northernminer.com. Pandemic lops 8% off mining CapEx spend in 2020. And continuing on, uh, this is a story we've also been following on the podcast, Centera is suing their former director over the Kumtor mine expropriation. So this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, and let's just take a closer look at this. Sentara Gold has sued the new external manager of its Kumtor mine, which was seized by Kyrgyzstan last weekend, claiming that he conspired to steal the asset from the company while he was a director. The Toronto-based miner alleges that former board member Tengiz Bolteruk, secretly cooperated with Canadian and U.S. lawyers, as well as with the government of Kyrgyzstan, to stage the mine expropriation. In the suit, filed in the Ontario Superior Court on May 20th, Santera claims that Bolteruk, a dual Canadian and Kyrgyz citizen, breached his duty of loyalty and confidentiality to the company by going behind its back. Bolterich joined the board of Centera in December 2020 and resigned on May 17th, 2021, two days before Kyrgyz authorities announced he had been appointed as, quote, external manager of the miner's wholly owned subsidiary, Kumtor Gold Company, which operated Kumtor until its seizure. So he is now the external manager for the seized asset. Yeah, so, wow. Sentara also claims that prior to the seizure of the mine, state-owned company Kurgazelton JSC tried diverting $29 million to an authorized bank account using forged payment instructions sent to a third party. Remember that story from last week? It was an anti-Bitcoin story where the, the gas processing plant was seized by hackers and they used Bitcoin to give the ransom. And that's really unusual. Usually you would use Monero, which is a privacy coin that's hard to trace, if not impossible. Whereas Bitcoin is super traceable. So that whole story was bizarre, like that they wouldn't be that clueless as to what they're asking for. Anyway, continuing on here. Kyrgyzstan has said it took control of the Kumtor mine because of the, quote, abdication of its fundamental duties of care End quote, by Sentera, charging that it had suspended deliveries of materials needed to operate the mine and it had disabled, quote, critical sensors, end quote, used to monitor the stability of the mine and the movement of nearby glaciers. And Sentera CEO Scott Perry said in a statement, quote, we can assure our shareholders that we are pursuing all available avenues to us in connection with recent events, including against any persons who violate their obligation to Sentera and its shareholders. In the meantime, to deflect attention from their unprecedented and unprovoked seizure of the Kumtor mine, Kyrgyz officials and Mr. Bolteruk continue to make unjustified claims related to environmental and safety conditions. So there you have it, the latest on the Kumtor mine. Very dramatic stuff. And quick look at this SQM story. There are fears of higher taxes in Chile. Nevertheless, SQM, the world's number two producer of lithium, is moving ahead with their expansion. And this is by Cecilia Gemazmi. So, I mean, what are they going to do? Are they just going to close down their shop at the first threat of higher taxes? As the market is growing faster than expected, the company said it will fast-track existing expansion plans in Chile's lithium-rich Atacama salt flat. Now, this kind of relates, interestingly, to that Earlier story we had on our opening story on EV batteries. We have a quote by CEO Ricardo Ramos, and this is from the Q1 conference call. "Quote: We saw strong demand growth for electric vehicles during the first quarter, more than double compared to last year, making us believe that annual demand for lithium chemicals could grow more than 30%. So again, this electric vehicle thing is really taking off from the sounds of it. So SQM is pushing forward. Just wanted to touch on that. And finally, Glencore leads miners group in Cobalt Blockchain Pilot. So again, another electric vehicle-related story with Cobalt. And this is also by Cecilia Jamasmi. Mining.com, mining and commodities trader Glencore has joined forces with battery material supplier Umicore and major miners to trace the Cobalt they produce using blockchain technology. The group, which includes Eurasian Resources Group and China Molybdenum, are piloting Resource, a solution to track responsibly produced cobalt from mine to electric car. Tested in real operating conditions from upstream cobalt production facilities in the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, to downstream electric vehicle production sites, the pilot will run until the end of 2021 with the rollout of the final solution expected in 2022. You know, I like it when. Projects like this move fast. I would consider that pretty fast. We're going to be done by the end of the year and we're going to roll it out in 2022. We don't need to take four years to do this. Glencore CEO Ivan Gleisenberg noted that while blockchain offers unprecedented ability to trace commodities in the supply chain, it is not enough on its own. Quote, it must be part of a wider industry effort to bring improvements to the entire cobalt supply chain. End quote. And this is only one of a few different blockchain initiatives. A handful of companies in the mining industry have explored the use of blockchain in the past two years. The world's number one diamond producer by value, De Beers, has launched its Tracer platform, which allows tracing gemstones through the entire value chain from mine to buyer. Remember that story from a couple of months ago, where Chinese buyers would prefer ESG diamonds over just any diamond, ESG, you know, authenticated diamonds, for lack of better words, over just non-ESG friendly diamonds. And remember what Robert Friedland said about how there will be a premium placed on your copper that you mine if you can prove that it is ESG friendly. So see all these dots are starting to connect here. Automaker Ford partnered up in 2019 with IBM, South Korea battery maker LG Chem, and China's largest cobalt producer, YU Cobalt, to trace cobalt on a simulated sourcing scenario. And finally, the pilot comes as the European Commission is considering mandatory requirements covering the use of responsibly sourced materials in EV batteries. By 2030, EU economies need to secure more than 64,000 tons of ethically sourced cobalt beyond existing supply chain constraints. Volume of metal worth about $3.2 billion at current prices to fuel the transition to electric vehicles. The run on the metals price is prompting mining companies to seek new reserves from Australia to the deep sea. And that's a whole other issue. We had a great interview with Deep Green CEO, Who is mining these nodules at the bottom of the sea? He also, like Cameco, as we're going to see, is positioning himself as an environmentally friendly company. So, all very interesting stuff. And so, those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on May 25th, gold is trading at $1,885.44 per ounce. That is $18 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $27.73 per ounce. That is 73 cents lower than last week's quote, platinum is trading at $1,182.17 per ounce. That is $49 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,762.25 per ounce. That is $176 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.54 per pound. That is seven cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading at a dollar and nine cents. That is two cents lower than last week. Lead is trading up four cents at a dollar and one cent per pound. Nickel is trading lower at seven dollars and 73 cents per pound. That is 16 cents lower. And tin is trading at 14 dollars and 68 cents per pound. That is 54 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is trading 22 cents lower at $19.78 per pound. And finally, zinc is trading at $1.35 per pound. That is 2 cents higher than last week. So what do we see? Gold is higher, whereas the rest of the precious metals are lower. I almost feel like gold moving higher is actually a direct response to the Bitcoin trade. As JP Morgan was saying in an article, I'm not sure if we referenced that, Uh, But they said people are moving from Bitcoin to gold a little bit. So it's funny how sentiment changes. Other than that, it's almost all slightly lower, except for tin, lead, and zinc. So not too much happening. A bit of a consolidation, taking a bit of a break, no crashes. Gold is really the story here. And it's going to be interesting to see if it can keep its momentum. It has been moving pretty steadily higher over the last eight weeks. So it has the wind in its sails. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Tim Gitzel, president and CEO of Cameco Corporation, based out of Saskatchewan, my home province. And another really interesting conference call, which positions Cameco as Canada's first net zero mining company. So you see they continue with the environmental angle and also some very interesting insights on supply and demand and in a way that you can only get from a uranium company. Again, as Gitzel has said on a previous conference call, it's a very opaque market. And finally, he also discusses how there is more certainty in the demand for nuclear power in the New nuclear reactors are being built in China and in other jurisdictions, yet the supply is much less certain, leading to what looks like a bit of a supply crunch in 2030. Anyway, you can listen for yourself. I hope you enjoy it, and we will see you on the other side.
1: Welcome to everyone on the call today. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. I hope you and your families are doing well. Last quarter I talked to you about our excitement for the future of our industry and about the opportunity for nuclear power to play a pivotal role in the transition to a net zero carbon economy through both traditional and non-traditional uses. I also talked about the excitement we have for the role that chemical can play in that future as we execute on our Tier 1 strategy which includes production discipline, marketing discipline and conservative balance sheet management. I have to say that over the course of the last few months there has been nothing to dampen our enthusiasm and in fact there have been a number of developments that continue to support our optimism. I'll get into those in a bit but I'm going to provide a recap of what I said were the three main drivers for our optimism. First. Demand for nuclear power is becoming more certain, as the mega-trend of increasing electrification while phasing out carbon-intensive sources of energy continues to take hold around the globe. Second, uranium supply is becoming less certain, as years of persistently low prices have led to planned production curtailments, lack of investment, the end of reserve life for some mines, shrinking secondary supplies. And trade policy issues. And finally, that our long term strategy positions us very well to sustainably deliver long term value. Let's start with a macro view the fundamentals for energy. As I said previously, we are seeing today a mega trend focused on increasing electrification while at the same time achieving massive decarbonization goals. This mega trend has led to a mega challenge that challenge being threefold. First, to bring safe, clean and reliable baseload electricity to about one-third of the population who currently have no access or limited access to electricity. Second, to clean up and replace our existing sources of electricity with a safe, clean, reliable, affordable and carbon-free option. And finally, to transition away from the current use of thermal sources of energy for things like transportation and heating. This mega challenge of increasing electrification is occurring precisely while countries and companies around the world are fixated on reducing their carbon footprint. Many have announced net zero carbon targets and many more are expected to follow. Country after country is recognizing that in a world where 85% of our electricity still comes from fossil fuel sources. There's no clear pathway to sustainably achieve both electrification and decarbonization without nuclear in the toolbox. As I noted earlier, over the last few months, there's been further support for nuclear's role in the clean energy transition. In Europe, we've seen nuclear move another step closer to being included in the EU Sustainable Finance Taxonomy. A rigorous, scientific, full life cycle assessment from the Joint Research Centre, concluded that there are no scientific arguments supporting the exclusion of nuclear energy from the taxonomy. The European Commission then proposed a supplement to current legislation that, if passed, will confirm nuclear as sustainable. In addition, in France, the French Nuclear Safety Authority granted a 10-year extension to the operating lives of 32 of EDF's nuclear power plants. Conservatively, this could equate to at least 100 million pounds of additional uranium demand not previously accounted for. Over in China, the Nuclear Energy Association confirmed that the country's 14th five-year plan targets 70 gigawatts of nuclear power operating by 2025, an increase of approximately 20 gigawatts from 2020, with another 50 gigawatts under construction. It also indicated China could reach up to 120 gigawatts in operation by 2030, as part of its plan to be carbon neutral by 2060. This would translate into annual consumption of about 60 million pounds of uranium per year. In Russia, Rosatom announced a target of 24 new reactors that will be needed by 2045 to increase Russia's share of nuclear to 25% of the energy mix. This would add another 12 million pounds of annual demand to Russia's requirements. And at the recent Global Leaders' Summit on Climate hosted by the United States, aggressive plans to reduce carbon emissions and achieve net zero carbon goals over the next 30 years were discussed and many commitments were made. For example, in the U.S. where nuclear energy is increasingly recognized as a major source of carbon-free scalable energy. The President announced a goal to cut up to 52% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, leveraging existing nuclear energy and advanced reactor technology in its clean energy initiatives. And he's promised to make the electricity system fossil fuel free by 2035. Japan has revealed plans to cut carbon emissions 46% from 2013 levels by 2030 maintaining its target for nuclear to provide 20-22% to 22% of its generating capacity. Furthermore, we are seeing momentum building for non-traditional commercial uses of nuclear power, such as the development of small modular reactors and advanced reactors. Nuclear is also the only low carbon source that can produce heat that, along with its traditional uses, can be used to produce clean hydrogen and fresh water. We are also seeing company after company announce net zero carbon targets. They recognize there is increasing scrutiny on their environmental performance. Investors are beginning to price climate-related risk into their capital allocation decisions. Investors are not only looking to invest in those companies that can demonstrate improved environmental performance, they will look for those companies that are positioned to do it profitably and sustainably. Unlike in the past, companies will be accountable for where the energy to fuel their operations comes from. We like to think of it as electron accountability. and They'll have to make decisions that are economically sound to attract investment. When you look at levelized costs of nuclear compared to other low carbon sources, nuclear energy is that solution. It's the most cost effective way to provide low carbon, dispatchable, 24-7 electricity. So the outlook for nuclear is very bright. Increasing demand for nuclear means increasing demand for uranium. Which brings us to the second factor that I said is driving our growing optimism. Demand for uranium is rising at precisely the same time that supply is becoming less certain. One of the indicators we look at to illustrate the opportunity is uncovered requirements. We know that utilities have not been replacing what they consume annually under long-term contracts. This has led to a growing wedge of uncovered uranium requirements. That wedge is now bigger than it was back in the early 2000s, which was another period of complacency. There are only a couple of sources for this information. If we look, uh, for example, at UXC, which tends to be the most conservative view, they show that global cumulative uncovered uranium requirements are about 1.4 billion pounds to the end of 2035. If we back that up to when it's needed to be contracted, produced, and delivered, the challenge is to buy 1.4 billion pounds by 2030. That would require 140 million pounds of long-term contracting per year starting in 2020. Last year, we saw 50 million pounds placed under long-term contracts, So that demand is piling up in a future window. Keep in mind this is just traditional demand we're talking about. It does not consider any of the alternative uses of nuclear I talked about earlier. We're also seeing increased demand for uranium from financial players, the junior uranium companies who recognize that statistically the current uranium price has a much greater likelihood of going up than down, and this view is supported by the fundamentals. The growing uncovered requirements are occurring at a time when there are some big question marks about where the uranium will come from to fuel the world's expanding nuclear fleet. Cameco's supply curtailments alone, both planned and unplanned, along with our purchasing activity have resulted in at least a 145 million pound swing in the supply fundamentals since 2016. Since the end of 2020 we've seen two long-term producing mines come to the end of their reserve life. The loss of the Ranger mine in Australia and the Cominac mine in Niger will further reduce supply by about 7 million pounds per year. And our Cigar Lake mine is done about 8 years from now, so right in that 10-year contracting window we're talking about, that's another 18 million pounds per year gone. Given the timelines it takes, we should be investing now to replace that lost production, but at today's prices, that makes zero sense. In addition, as a highly trade-dependent commodity, government-driven policies can be particularly disruptive for the uranium market. Due to persistently low prices, we've seen planned supply curtailments, lack of investment, the end of reserve life for some mines, and shrinking secondary supplies all of which have been amplified more recently by unplanned supply disruptions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Consequently, primary supply has become concentrated. It's concentrated geographically, with about 80% of primary supply coming from countries that consume little to no uranium, and nearly 90% of consumption occurring in countries that have little to no primary production and it is highly concentrated by producer with about 70% of primary production in the hands of the top five producers and about 80% in the hands of state-owned entities. So We believe that in the current market the risks to uranium supply are far greater than the risks to uranium demand. These are the fundamentals that get us up in the morning and why we remain a pure play supplier of the uranium fuel needed to produce clean, carbon-free baseload electricity. Which brings me to the final factor driving our optimism, our strategy, and why we remain committed to doing what we said we would do. Let me remind you what it is that we said we would do. First and foremost, and this is where it starts for us, we're focused on protecting the health and safety of our workers, their families, and their communities. We're doing that. Every day, we make decisions about how best to manage our operations and protect and support our workforce through the pandemic. In December, the trends we were seeing in the COVID-19 pandemic caused us to proactively pause Cigar Lake production for a second time, as concerns about the availability of workers in critical areas was increasing. During the temporary shutdown, we put further COVID-related protocols in place. Combined with our on-site testing facility and the vaccine rollout in the province, we had the confidence to restart the mine in April, with greater certainty that the mine will be able to operate safely and sustainably. We will continue to monitor the situation in our communities and will have regular dialogue with public health authorities. Pandemic or no pandemic, the health and safety of our workers will always be our priority. We will not hesitate to take further action if we feel our ability to operate safely is compromised. Second, apart from the COVID-19 disruptions to our operations, we have not wavered from the execution of our strategy. There are three fronts on which we are executing our strategy – operational, marketing and financial. On the operational side, we have implemented our planned supply discipline, cutting production well below our delivery commitments. This includes the curtailment of production at Rabbit Lake, our U.S. assets, and of course at the MacArthur River-Key Lake operation. As I said earlier, these actions have left a lot of pounds in the ground and kept them off the market. Consequently, we've been purchasing material on the spot market to meet our committed deliveries. In addition, we've shown sales discipline, sticking to our value strategy. We've been strategically patient. We take a portfolio approach to building our contract book, and much like building an investment portfolio, it's a balanced approach that manages risk and return. We like to layer in contracts where appropriate. We want to ensure we support the operating costs of our assets while not committing our Tier 1 pounds too far in the future under contracts that won't generate an appropriate portfolio return, and we do not want to exhaust our Tier 1 assets in a low-price environment. we're seeing our patients pay off. In April we successfully finalized and executed a number of sales contracts which had been under negotiation adding nine million pounds to our long-term contract portfolio which together with recent long-term contracting totals almost 60 million pounds. And we continue to have a large pipeline of uranium business under negotiation. In fact we continue to see off-market interest growing and historically It has been a leading indicator of broader demand for long-term contracting. We are having conversations with our biggest and best customers. These customers recognize the long-term fundamentals. They want access to long-lived Tier 1 productive capacity from commercial suppliers who have a proven operating track record. They understand that from a security of supply perspective, today's prices do not reflect production economics. They recognize the first-mover advantage gained from securing their future access to our Tier 1 pounds today, as opposed to in the future. And we have some competitive advantages. We have significant idle Tier 1 capacity that is fully licensed and fully permitted that will be among the first pounds to meet the growing demand in the market. We are an independent commercial supplier and provide our customers supply diversity from State-owned enterprises. With substantial Canadian productive capacity, we can help de-risk their future supply from trade policy exposure. And emerging is the focus on ESG matters, which is great news for us. The Cameco serving the interests of our stakeholders has always been at the heart of what we do, long before there was a focus on ESG issues, because it's the right thing to do, and we recognize the significant business value it adds. Our board... Our employees, contractors, communities, suppliers, customers, governments, and our providers of capital expect us to manage this company in a long-term sustainable fashion. We are very proud of our over 30-year commitment to protect, engage, and support development of our people and their communities, and to protect the environment. The uranium fuel we supply plays a significant role in contributing to greenhouse gas mitigation efforts in Canada and abroad. In Canada alone, this uranium fuel provides greater than 30% of the province of Ontario's electricity every year, avoiding more than 5 million tonnes of carbon dioxide from being emitted. Considering only the Canadian emissions avoided resulting from the use of nuclear power in Ontario, we like to think of ourselves as Canada's first net-zero mining company. So we are well positioned to meet our customer needs. And finally, on the financial side, we've been very deliberate in shoring up our balance sheet. At the end of the first quarter, we had negative net debt with $1 billion in cash and a $1 billion undrawn credit facility. As such, we have the financial capacity to self-manage risk and maintain our strategic resolve. Before I move on from the strength of our balance sheet, I do want to address what the Supreme Court of Canada decision means for us. First and foremost, it means that this dispute is fully and finally resolved for 2003, 2005 and 2006, and that Camico's marketing structure and behaviour through this period were in full compliance with the Income Tax Act. In other words, CAMICO followed the law, And it was the CRA and its reassessments that were offside. And as stated many times with this decision, we believe CRA should move quickly to resolve all subsequent years and return to us the $303 million of cash they are holding and release the $482 million in letters of credit that are tied up as security for all years. While this dispute has been before the courts, we have been accused of not paying our fair share of taxes. Now that this matter is no longer before the courts, it gives me great satisfaction to know that the court system in Canada has unequivocally confirmed that we did pay our fair share of taxes. But there are elements of this that are not fair. It's not fair that we have to continue to wait for an indeterminate period for the CRA to make the decision to return our cash and credit capacity. And it's not fair to see Camico disparaged in the recent federal budget document as engaging in inappropriate profit shifting in light of what various court judgments actually say. Camico has contributed to the health and safety of individuals around the world. We participated in the Megatons to Megawatts program that saw the dismantling of more than 20,000 nuclear weapons converting 500 metric tons of highly enriched uranium into low enriched uranium for use as fuel in nuclear reactors. And we're proud to be part of the venture that makes Canada the world's leading supplier of cobalt-60 for medical applications and other gamma technologies, demonstrating the tremendous benefits the nuclear industry delivers to Canadians and others around the world. GammaCo has contributed millions of dollars for community and infrastructure projects in northern Saskatchewan, including schools, housing, recreation facilities. Since 2009, we've invested nearly $10.5 million in support of infrastructure improvement projects in local communities, which have been targeted at youth, health and wellness, including mental health, education and literacy, and community development. We're a leading industrial employer of Indigenous peoples in Canada providing well-paying jobs in northern Saskatchewan for over 30 years. We've helped establish and grow businesses in northern Saskatchewan by procuring almost $4 billion in services since 2004. We've reinvested billions of dollars in Canada, building mines and mills and filling voids in programs for some communities. So we take great exception to any claim that what we have done is in any way unfair when it is in accordance with the law. The facts show that Canada has benefited greatly from the profits we have generated, and this distraction should be resolved immediately. Setting this issue to the side, I am happy to say that we are performing well on all three strategic fronts. However, there are costs to our strategic decisions, which are reflected in our financial results. But the good news is, this does not represent the run rate of our business and we expect much better days ahead once we return to a Tier 1 cost structure. We're taking the steps today and incurring the costs we expect will allow us to restart our Tier 1 assets with more flexibility in the production rate, to eliminate the care and maintenance costs incurred while our Tier 1 production is suspended, and to benefit from the very favorable life of mine economics they provide. We're confident in our ability to transition through this period capture demand that will provide leverage to higher prices. And we have concluded that we have the right vision, strategy and values to deliver long-term sustainable value. Our vision, which is to energize a clean air world, recognizes that we have an important role to play in enabling the vast reductions in greenhouse gas emissions required to achieve a resilient, net-zero carbon economy. As we seek to achieve our vision, we are committed to doing it in a manner that reflects our values. Those values have not changed. They have always guided our actions and they place a priority on safety in the environment, on building and supporting a flexible, skilled, stable and diverse workforce, on behaving with integrity and leading by example, on promoting equality and acting to eliminate racism wherever it exists and on pursuing excellence in all that we do and inspiring others to do the same. Our decisions are deliberate. We are a responsible, commercially motivated supplier with a diversified portfolio of assets, including a Tier 1 production portfolio that is among the best in the world. We are well positioned to take advantage of a market where demand for nuclear power, both traditional and non-traditional, is growing, where we believe the risk to uranium supply is greater than the risk to uranium demand, and where we believe our strategic decisions and strategic patience provide us with resiliency in the face of unprecedented challenges and will result in the rewards that will come from having low-cost supply to deliver into a strengthening market. So thanks for joining our call today and Operator with that, we would be happy to answer any questions.
0: You know, that tax dispute, it makes you wonder, does someone at the CRA not like Cameco? Who knows? Pure speculation here, but it sure makes you wonder. Thank you for once again joining us on the program. If you'd like to help support the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Directory. And otherwise, feel free to share it with your friends. And until next week, take care. This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF.